When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. This is World Business Report from the BBC World Service. Hello, I'm Roger Hearing. The ship, filled with Ukrainian grain and also carrying the hopes of a hungry world, arrives safely in Turkey. Could its heavily negotiated passage be the first of many? Also, the woman odds-on to become the UK's next Prime Minister swiftly U-turns on a policy of paying public sector workers less if they live in areas with a lower cost of living. But is it such a mad idea? And the staggering cost of renting in New York. I just got my new lease, and guess what? They're raising my rent 48%. All that coming up. But first, while the world's eyes have been focused on Ukraine, the Russian invasion and President Putin's part in raising global energy costs, there's been a gradual increase of tension in another area of the globe that could have even more dramatic effects on the global economy. Taiwan, seen by China as a renegade province, has long been a problem for relations between Washington and Beijing, with the US giving a nuanced but clear promise of support for the island if China invades. And Taiwan is not just a political problem. It's where the world's largest producer of microchips is based, and a threat to TSMC isn't something economists want to contemplate. Now, into this confrontation has now come a leading Democrat, the Speaker of the US House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi. After weeks of speculation, she arrived in Taipei in the last few hours. It's the highest-ranking visit by an American official for 25 years. Now, she released a statement saying she wanted to honour America's unwavering commitment to what she called Taiwan's vibrant economy. For its part, China said the visit seriously infringed on its sovereignty and undermined peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait. And it said it will launch targeted military actions in response. Not quite clear what that means. President Biden, meanwhile, hasn't banked the trip, but he has hardly been warming relations with Beijing over the past year. Well, let's examine all of this. Let's get views from the US and Taiwan. We can hear from Philip Xu, who's director of the Center for China Studies at National Taiwan University, actually currently uh, joining us from Washington, D.C see where he is at the moment. Uh, welcome to you, Philip. But also, uh, we're joined by Michael Oslin, who's a distinguished fellow of the Hoover Institute at the University of Sanford. Now, Michael, let me come to you first, if I may. Um, what do you think is going to be the effect of, of this visit? What is actually going to happen as a result? Well, I think we have to look and, and distinguish between what the Chinese are willing to do in the short term, uh, then what they will do over a, a medium term to pressure Taiwan, and then long term to try to prevent these types of visits from happening again. I think their their key frustration is that they're not able to prevent Americans and, and high-level ranking Americans from coming and visiting. But in the short term, as you already saw with increased military exercises and their claim that they um, flew their jets into Taiwan's actual airspace, not just the area around Taiwan, that they're going to try to be intimidating Taiwan to raise the risks in the minds of the Taiwanese that these visits yeah. are simply not worth it. Well, let me let me let me get the view from Taiwan, because we've got, of course, uh, a Philip Shu here. Philip, how is Taiwan thinking about this? Is there a feeling that is a good thing or is it a way of raising tension that could be a very bad thing? Well, in general, uh, most people in Taiwan welcome Pelosi to visit is they see the benefit created by the gesture 
of strong U.S. support and uh, advancement in Taiwan's international standing. Meanwhile, there are also discussions in the Taiwan society about the possible cost from the visit. Some citizens and experts expect Beijing to undertake vehement retaliatory actions as Xi Jinping and high-ranking officials have indicated such intention explicitly. This opinion group calls for necessary preparations for all possible dire consequences and an assessment of the desirability of similar moves by Thomas friends in the future. Yeah, well, let a me, different opinion. Yeah, yes. well, I was saying, let me just raise with Michael that possibly, and we obviously don't have a line from Beijing at the moment, apart from these slight threats. Michael, do you think Beijing will react very strongly to this? Will they, uh, will they raise things to the point where it becomes a major crisis? I don't think so. I think I think their rhetoric will, has already raised uh, about as high as it can go, but they'll continue to try to raise it. As I said, I think you will see increased uh, incursions around Taiwan's airspace and in its waters. Uh, but the but the Chinese also understand that this is a long running evolution in America's China policy and Taiwan policy. They cannot stop these visits. Uh, they also are, are sophisticated enough to understand that Nancy Pelosi, she may be the Speaker of the House, but members of Congress act independently from the administration. And they know that this is not what the Biden administration has asked her to do. And in fact, the president tried to make that clear. So I think that they will put the pressure that, that they can on Taiwan to no longer accept yeah. these visits or encourage them, uh, but they know that they can't stop them. So, so Philip, I mean, let me ask you then, because Taiwan, obviously, it, not just a, a major political of political interest, obviously very great economic interest, the huge microchip manufacturing. The world has a great interest in this not becoming a major fighting uh, problem, a war, anything of that kind. Are there things that Taiwan can do, Philip, that could change this, could bring the temperature down? Yeah, uh, I think one example is this uh, interview uh, with uh, the CEO of uh, TSMC days ago, uh, Mr. Liu. He indicated that if China attacks Taiwan, that would uh, not only ruin the uh, microchips industry in Taiwan, but it's going to create a problem for all the world, probably even including China itself. So I guess what Taiwan can do now is trying to, first of all, um, tell Beijing that Taiwan did not take the initiative to um, shatter the status quo or undermine the peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait so that uh, Beijing could contemplate this and exercise more uh, self-restraint down the road. Uh, let me come finally back, back to you uh, uh, on this uh, and let me get a, a sense, uh, uh, Michael, whether you think that the Americans in the end want to raise, uh, there's been a lot of, uh, of talk really about how threat a threat China is, but they don't really want to push this. President Biden didn't back Nancy Pelosi in this. Do you see any kind of, uh, of, of peace palms coming from Washington at the moment towards Beijing? Well, I think first the Biden administration has kept up the Trump administration's pressure over Taiwan. They have been very supportive of Taiwan, even going farther than the Trump administration in some respects. So I think that this this overall desire to normalize as much as possible relations with Taiwan will continue. At the same time, however, I think they will be offering uh, olive trees or, or, or you know palm trees to yes. try to uh, to try to make sure that they're saying, look, we're always open to dialogue. We're always open to talking. Mm -hmm. We want relations with Beijing to continue on a good path. But uh, this independent, yeah. in their view, move towards normalizing relations, uh, yeah. or at least normalizing contact with Taiwan, 
that's going to continue. Yeah, George Orr rather than War War, but uh, still a, a bit of tension. My thanks both to Michael Oslin and Philip Shu joining me there live on the line. Now, the Rizzoni has made it. The first ship carrying grain to have left a Ukrainian port since the Russian invasion has arrived in Turkish waters after navigating what, at the moment, are some of the most dangerous waters in the world with the ever-present threat of mines and missiles. Under the agreement, hammered out by the UN, Turkey and the warring parties, it will now be inspected for prohibited goods before heading to Lebanon. And if all goes to plan, it could have begun a process that could see many more ships bring Ukraine's harvest to a hungry world. Well, Richard Mead is editor of the global shipping journal Lloyd's List. We spoke a little earlier and he started by updating me on the Rizzoni's progress. Well, Rizzoni called into Istanbul waters at about six o'clock this evening. So it exited Odessa. Um, led by a Ukrainian tug to get through the minefield and then it's, it's travelled through the Black Sea and it's now waiting for an inspection team from the Turkish Coordination Centre which has been established in the Istanbul Defence University and they're going to be the ones that give it the green lights. Under the terms of the agreement, the Turks are the ones that are looking to see whether there is any illicit activity, whether they are carrying any weapons. Uh, assuming it passes those tests, it will be allowed through the Bosphorus and off it goes to Lebanon. So at the moment, they'll be in a few hours' time, they'll probably be crawling all over it, taking it apart, making sure, taking photos, getting the evidence together. And they then presumably have to give a kind of big green tick for the parties to all this agreement to accept that it's worked. That's as far as we understand it. There has been a, a joint coordination centre that established and there's a lot of international observers. It's being led by officials from across the UN agencies and international observers from each of the sides. So there is a lot of scrutiny here. We don't know exactly what is going to go on in terms of the inspections. We don't know how long they will take, um, but all eyes are on this shipment because I think everybody is waiting to see what happens uh, assuming it goes ahead, then decisions will be taken about further shipments. Well, that was exactly my next question. So, I mean, this has been a test. The test, we could assume, has gone pretty well so far. So once that big green tick I was talking about is on paper, then I guess will there be other ships are ready to set out from Odessa in the nearest future? Yes, absolutely. So at the moment, we are tracking around 16 ships that are fully laden with grain in Odessa, Chonomorsk and Yuzhny. They're the three ports under the terms of the agreement. So they are ready to go. So there's a lot of pressure on the uh, current shipment to effectively get the green light. When we say this has been a test, it's been a test politically, um, you know, in terms of the willpower on all sides to keep to the terms of the agreement, but also logistics. Don't forget that these ships are coming out of mined waters. They did, there were no minesweeping operations in advance of this being agreed. It was going to take too long. They estimated about four months to do it safely. So these ships are being led out through the waters by tugs who know where the mines are. So, so they've got now, the map, effectively, although one wonders, much, I suppose, yeah. with mines. They wonder, don't they? Well, well untethered ones do, but uh, hopefully these are the tethered variety for everyone's sake. But um, the... The, the test is one of logistics, apart from anything else. I mean, there are only a few tugs that are there ready and able to, to move these ships. So there is going to be a, a logistical challenge in terms of ramping this up. And I don't think that we are necessarily going to see a flotilla of ships suddenly leaving port if this one gets the green light. I think it will take several weeks for this to get going in, in earnest. And don't forget, we're looking at around... 26 million tonnes of grain that needs to be uh, exited from the silos in these three ports. 
Um, and that's before we even start thinking about things like fertilizer on the Russian side, which is part of the terms of the agreement. Yeah, I mean, logistics obviously are, are challenging, but the fact is it's a hungry world, and we know that because of the involvement, of course, of the UN in all this. Yes, no, there is definitely the demand. There is uh, the demand to make this happen. The insurers are, are pretty much ready and waiting to go. Assuming this goes to plan, I think we will see further um, cover being offered from the war risk providers. And as you say, the logistics are there to be overcome, but let's not underestimate quite how challenging some of this stuff is. These ships have been stuck in port for several months in the middle of a war zone. We've got to make sure that we've got the right crew there. We've got to make sure that the ships are ready to sail, that there has been no damage. Uh, And then we've got to get new ships in and we've got to get all the charter agreements ready to get new ships to load grain after these ones have been exited. So there is a lot to happen now. And the lucky recipient of the first shipment, of course, is Lebanon. Absolutely, yes. Uh, You know, a country that is desperately in need of grain. And of course, uh, you know, we have seen over the weekend quite how uh, dicey things have got there. They are waiting for this to arrive. And there are many, many other countries that are waiting for shipments of grain that are now being chartered by the UN's World Food Programme. They are going to be the ones that are prioritised in terms of the uh, ordering of the shipments. Richard Mead of Lloyd's List. Now, it's perhaps the fastest U-turn in political history. A plan to link public sector pay to local living costs was put forward by the team of Liz Truss. She's the woman currently favourite to succeed Boris Johnson as Britain's Prime Minister. Now, the idea was to have regional pay boards who would set lower pay for civil servants in areas where the cost of living is lower, saving, they said, a potential £8.8 billion. In the course of a few hours, Team Truss saw fit to walk back their original plan as confirmed by the woman herself aiming to get the keys to Downing Street. I'm afraid that my policy on this has been misrepresented. I never had any intention of changing the terms and conditions of teachers and nurses. But what I want to be clear about is I will not be going ahead with the regional pay boards. That is no longer my policy. Well, the reason? It was hugely panned by almost everyone, MPs, newspapers and Conservative Party members, especially in Northern Britain. But is there any sense in such an idea? Is it logical to pay people less where their own costs are less? And if it saves public money, surely that's a good thing? I put that to the economist Professor Jagjit Chadha, who's director of the National Institute of Economic and Social Research. It's not really the way we need to think about levelling up. If we really want to level up, we need to invest across the country, particularly where there are large gaps in infrastructure, but also where local incomes are relatively low. The way that we support jobs in the medium term is to have higher levels of income in those areas. And that's not going to be done if we start cutting wages in those parts of the country. Really, what we need are highly productive firms that can provide stable jobs and incomes at higher levels that would generate local demands for goods and services that can give people less precarious careers and more stable incomes so they can live their lives in a less uncertain manner. That's really the way we need levelling up to happen. But but isn't that really going to come more from the private sector? It's not really the public sector that engineers these kind of things, in in a way, by, I suppose, hanging on to people's tax money, not spending so much of it, perhaps, therefore taxing people less. Businesses could pay people more. Absolutely right. I mean, in the end, we think what matters of productivity is private sector productivity, the innovation and invention of our private sector in combination with the level of education that we have and the capital available. But we also know there's a lot of preconditions for that in terms of public services that have to be provided. 
Some of those public services are infrastructure, roads. Some of them are things like hospitals, social services and schools. These need to be in place. And of course, a large number of them are provided by the public sector. So these are what economists tend to call initial conditions, the things that we need in place for the private sector to thrive. It cannot work on its own. In the end, there needs to be a partnership between the two. So you're quite right to say we don't want a public sector that's too large and leading to uh, uh, a, a drag on the private sector by having taxes also being elevated uh, to an un, un, uncertain level. But at the same time, we need certainty in the provision of our public services so that people, when they're carrying on their lives, can feel actually the state is going to educate me, the state is going to look after me when I'm not feeling particularly well, and the state is going to help me get from A to B. Unfortunately, in many parts of the country, that's not where it should be. And that's part of the reason that we need levelling up. But I suppose the other argument would be people say, well, OK, you know, you send the Treasury, I don't know, to Leeds, as has been pros- pros- thought of. Isn't there a risk of completely undermining the local economy? Because the, the civil servants on the Treasury go to Leeds, they earn civil service fairly high pay. And, and locally, the private sector can't compete. So you're draining away the workforce from there. Well, it has to be more than just moving um, civil servants up there. What we may find is that other high value uh, industries and businesses may want to site there as well in order to uh, use the pool of human capital that's available. The good example of this is the City of London. We know that many, many firms throughout the world want to site in the City of London because they know there's an excellent pool of highly skilled labour there that's mobile is, is wants to work there and, and is able to be highly productive there. So moving the Treasury there or moving the UK Investment Bank up there or moving parts of um, other elements of government um, to, to Darlington, where I think the Treasury also wants to move, is a start. If that can then lead to clusters of, of individuals of, of high net worth and firms that are highly productive moving there as well, that will start to build a story uh, for the private sector to build upon and build a, a much more secure future for people living in those areas. Professor Jagjit Chadha. Now, let's find out what's been happening on the US markets. I've been speaking to Brian Dorst from Themis Trading. He told me events in global politics are what's dictating trading. Absolutely. I think uh, the, day, the, the headlines of the day were obviously the Pelosi trip to Taiwan and, and the Chinese comments that, that followed and you know what, what is to come of that going forward. And so, I mean, yeah, I was going to say, you know, the things you might expect, I suppose, like Raytheon Technologies and Northrop Grumman uh, doing all right because, you know, weapons, I guess, are where it's at. Well, I mean, any anytime you have times of uncertainty like this involved around geopolitical events, yes, those are the stocks that are going to be, quote unquote, safer havens, right? And at the same time, I suppose there's also concern that how much further is the Fed going to go in terms of rates? I mean, people aren't really confident they know where the end point is, are they? No, I mean, that's, uh, I, think, I think we'll get a little bit more clarity at the end of the month when, uh, when, when uh, they have the Jackson Hole Conference, um, where they're going to go in September. I mean, you've got talks to 25 to another, another 75 bips. I think, you know, in reality, 25 to 50 bips is probably your your range. Is there a sense then that, that at the moment Wall Street's really feeling that uh, it hasn't got clear direction? It isn't absolutely clear how things are going to play out and uh, and people are just going for going for safety? I think these next couple of days, people are going to be watching China's response to our 
to the uh, U.S. delegation uh, in, in Taiwan. And they've already said that they're going to have some military exercises starting on the 4th. What are those actually going to look like? How close are they going to be off the coast of Taiwan and, and how and what kind of headlines are going to be generated from that? You know, when those headlines came out originally, market sold off. And I think the market was kind of in sell mode the rest of the day. And I think at least for the, the rest of the week, that's going to be the story. I mean, Ukraine will be a, 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 a bit of a backdrop. You know, people will watch what rates are doing and, and oil. But I really think that, you know, those the Taiwan and their and their exercise and the Chinese exercise in a couple of days and the response and headlines back and forth are really what people are watching. Brian Dorst from Themis Trading. Now, in New York, rents have soared in yet another sign of the cost of living squeeze in the U.S. The average rental price in Manhattan has surged above $5,000 a month for the first time in the city's history, as vacancy rates remain below 2%. Well, here's the BBC's North America business correspondent, Michelle Fleury, in New York. Would-be tenants are struggling with New York's red-hot rental market. New York's crazy right now. Long lines at open houses have become commonplace, many turning to social media to vent their frustrations. I just got my new lease, and guess what? They're raising my rent 48%. Hello. Hi, Michelle. How do you do? Very nice indeed. Come on in. So this is your apartment. Even estate agents like Sasha Reichand can't find comfort in the booming market. The rent on his two-bedroom Manhattan apartment is going up. This is our apartment. I really apologise for the mess, but we are moving out next weekend. Uh, That's where you've got the boxes and uh, all the packing material around here. His landlord just increased the price from $4,500 a month to $6,000. We knew it would go up. I obviously had expectations of it going up, but probably not by that much. For him and his family, it's the final straw. They're packing up and leaving the city. We did look at trying to find a place in Manhattan, but firstly, the inventory was so low. Um, And secondly, the kind of rates that landlords are now expecting are so high. So it left us with no choice but to look further afield, and we're actually moving to New Jersey now. For the first time in the Big Apple's history, the average rent in Manhattan is $5,000 a month, yet demand remains strong. I've come to the Upper East Side of Manhattan, to York Avenue and 86th Street, to see what $5,000 will get you. This is a perfect example of what you can get in New York City on Upper East Side for under $5,000. Ekaterina Vorobova is an estate agent for Bond, New York. She gives me a tour of a 375-square-foot one-bedroom that just leased for $4,500 a month. So how fast does an apartment like this go? Usually it takes about 24 to 48 hours the most to rent this apartment. So extremely fast. Very fast. She's noticed that more people are returning to the city after COVID lockdowns. We have new hires, we have students, and we have New Yorkers coming back to New York. And it all affects the prices. Another factor is the role of America's central bank. By raising borrowing costs to control record high inflation, more potential home buyers are being pushed into the rental market. Have you ever seen anything like this? Not in the rental market. Uh, 14, 15% increase above pre pandemic levels is a bit surprising. Jonathan Miller, a long standing expert on New York real estate and CEO of Miller Samuel, sees no signs of a slowdown. The middle class is being squeezed. This has been going on um, for, for decades. It continues to get, get worse. 
you know, it's really to the city's advantage to solve or a city's advantage to solve affordable housing because many of those, you know, would-be employees are what makes the city run. If you follow the rule of thumb that you shouldn't spend more than 30% of your income on rent to afford $5,000 a month, someone living on their own would need to make $200,000 a year to live in Manhattan, a sum that's out of reach for many in a city where the medium income is well under $100,000. With people being squeezed by the cost of living crisis, the only question on renters' minds is when will prices come down? When indeed. Michelle Fleurier there in New York. Well, joining me now live from New York as well is Pilar de Jesus, who's Senior Advocacy Coordinator of Take Root Justice. That's an organisation that provides free legal services for vulnerable people in the community. Pilar, thanks so much for being with us. Welcome to the programme. Just tell me, how bad is the situation? It sounds grim. I mean, yeah, housing crisis here in the city. And good evening. Um, it's pretty bad and it was we had a housing crisis prior to COVID and then with the pandemic, you know, it just escalated the, the housing crisis we have because now, you know, pe- families were choosing between rent and food before the pandemic. And then after the pandemic, they're choosing between rent, food, and then, you know, the, the necessities to protect themselves from the virus, right? And taking mm-hmm. all the precautions to protect their family. And then some families also had the burden of having to pay for families funerals remember we've had a lot of death too during the pandemic so and then there's no increase in salaries right and a lot of people also lost jobs if so yeah well i was gonna say with all this pressure it sounds horrendous i mean obviously as you say money and also uh, you know losses during covid what's the what's the mental health impact of this that must be quite something it's really 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 bad right now and you could see it especially um in our neighborhoods my neighbor in east harlem we have a lot of folks who are in the street who are also because you know being homeless takes a lot and they're going to drugs, unfortunately, hard drugs to help them cope, which, you know, obviously doesn't help, but they're doing hard drugs. It's, a, you know, it's just a lot of people in the street and it's it's getting worse. And I'm 41 years old and I've born and raised in this community and I can see the big difference. And it's a big concern yeah. for me. And what can you do? I mean, you know, your, your senior advocacy coordinator of Take with Justice is the things that are the things that some organization like yours can do to help. So the things that we're doing, we work in partnership with community-based organizations that are organizing. We have to organize to really push the legislators to hear us. We we were fighting hard for them to cancel the rent and mortgages during the pandemic because we knew that the the rent arrears that tenants were going to get piled up on the you know on their bill, they weren't going to be able to afford it, and that's what we're seeing now: eviction cases being. Um, put into housing court in the hundreds of thousands Mm. and there's not even enough attorneys so we're organizing you know or now legal service providers are organizing how do we push even the court to hear our cries it's a really really desperate situation and and well good luck to you is all i can say and you're obviously doing a great job so thanks very much for speaking to us pilar pilar de jesus the senior advocacy coordinator of take root justice and the problems of course in new york are very high rents that's pretty much it from world business report don't forget you can always get it available on bbc world business report a podcast this is the bbc world service Bye bye